Hello and welcome to another edition of the Ottoman History Podcast. My name is Graham Almond Pitts. Joining me today is Huda Youssef, author of Composing Egypt, Reading, Writing, and the Emergence of a Modern Nation, 1870-1930. Welcome to the podcast, Huda. Thank you so much. First of all, congratulations on the publication of your monograph, forthcoming this June with Stanford University Press. Thank you. The time period in question, the late 19th and early 20th centuries, was unquestionably formative for Egypt and marked by social and cultural upheaval. From the Nahda, or Renaissance of Arab thought, centered in many ways on Egypt, the country's colonization by Great Britain in 1882, and the consequent growth of the nationalist movement, leading to popular uprisings which gained the country's nominal independence after World War I. Historians have always credited the literate upper class, and specifically the emergent Effendia, as responsible for making Egypt into a modern nation. Huda Youssef shows that contrary to this binary depiction, reading and writing as practices reached more deeply into Egyptian society than has been allowed by scholars. She focuses on what she calls public literacies, which were, quote, a central platform for a wide range of Egyptians to engage in questions about the nature and future of a nascent Egyptian modernity. This book resurrects the role of the country's semi-literate and illiterate majority in composing Egypt. What struck me first was that you're not talking about literacy per se. Literacy isn't a concept that we can translate easily into Arabic. You're talking about public literacies. Mm -hmm. So what are those exactly, if you can give us a few examples? So what I, the sort of first uh, realization that I had was that the idea of literacy, reading and writing as these sort of unitary skills was was not actually something, there's actually no Arabic word even for the word literacy, right? Um, there's al-qira'a, al-kitaba, right? There's sort of these uh, these individual skills and a whole lot of other skills along with that. So it's already disaggregated into Arabic in some ways into, into these different practices that right. you're interested in. Right, It's the idea of literacy as a sort of goal is not really, as a concept is not really there, as a unitary concept. Rather, what people did do is they learned all sorts of different skills that were, that ranged along a much broader spectrum. There were people who could read, but could not, could not write. There are people who uh, engaged in reading and writing practices via communal practices, right? People who um, would have gone to a scribe if they needed to write something, would have listened to a newspaper being read out loud, right? So you have all of these sort of practices that were happening that were, didn't necessarily require somebody to be quote-unquote literate, right? So this idea of literacy is a very broad concept was sort of the first thing that sort of struck me uh, during this period. Um, the second thing that struck me was that that would be impossible to write about is in a single book, right? This is essentially, if you're going to say you're going to do a history of all of these types of literacies, um, anything that was ever written or spoken or read or write, written, I mean, all of that would be your sources. And so how did you pare that down? By using this idea of public literacies. So what I really tried to focus on in this book is the idea uh, are literacies that intersected with the public sphere in one way or another. Um, and by that I mean um, literacies that became part of a, a broader view of a broader part of society. So either through communal practices or through newspapers or through some sort of uh, attempt to broaden the reading and writing practice uh, beyond the immediate and so how does that broadening happen around 1870? Why did you choose that as a that's starting a, point? That's a good so, question. So what's that watershed? In yeah, terms of- I think what really happens around um, 
in the second part of the of the the 19th century is that you first you have um, these educated classes right the fendia that uh, we all sort of know as part of our uh, historiography of this period um, who are coming through the schools but they were a very limited number of people um, you have the broader uses of print which were cer- which is certainly a very important part of the story right people starting to use print in more uh, as, as a way to sort of publicly d- disseminate um, practice uh, uh, written works. The other thing that people do is um, you start seeing literacy as a part of the public concern. People start worrying about literacy, about who should be able to read and who should be able to write. And that's the other element of public literacy. It's not just that people were using it, but they were also concerned about it. Right. So you're curious about this debate that's happening about literacy and this anxiety that you see in print about changes that are happening in society. I mean, this is one metric of change in some sense, that you see people, something's happening. Right. And we can read that because of a lot of ink spilled Mm -hmm. on this question. For for instance, you open with an article from El Fatah from 1894 asking the question, can a man open letters sent to his wife? Right. And there's all sorts of assumptions that go on along with this question. Can a man open his letters, his uh, letters sent to his wife? Assumes that the wife is literate, right? Which already sort of takes you into a different realm, right? Not most women weren't literate. So it's certainly for a certain class, but it showed up in a public in a in a public forum, in a newspaper, in a women's newspaper, one of the first. Right. Right. So you're seeing sort of this becoming part of the court of sort of discourse. But then there's also this question of can literacy be subversive if a woman can write a letter to a, to somebody, presumably outside of the household, that letter gets sent and then it came back and what right. So right. there's all sorts of questions of where where does a woman how does this undermine a household? Subversive for patriarchy. And you get to the answer to that question towards the end of the book, which is, can, can, can should a man be able to open his wife's letter? Right. What, what, what did the editorialist uh, decide? Right. So there was a, um, the brother of, uh, of Hin Naufel, who is the proprietor of this particular newspaper, he wrote in the next issue that essentially um, there are only three types of women. Hawahir, Kawahir, and Jawahir. So there are um, women who are essentially whores. There are women who are tyrants. And then there are women who are gems. And if a woman is a gem, right, if she fulfills sort of these ideal vision of what a domestic woman is, then she can open, you, then you should, she can open your letters just as you can open her letters. So literacy won't subvert patriarchy if the literate woman isn't subverting right. patriarchy. <laughs> right, essentially, right. So it basically, like, there's this, a lot of anxiety about particularly women, um, read, uh, particularly writing for women. Um, but uh, there's this sort of taming of that, right? If it's done in the right domestic sphere, if it's done in a particular way, then it's a, uh, it can be a boon for a family, right? right? It, then this woman can be a, uh, a partner, essentially. Right. And so you talk about public literacy as mutable. It serves the purposes, you write, of those who wielded it. Parochial, nationalistic, Islamic, educational, feminist, bureaucratic, and personal goals were all aided by this new domain of public literacies. But you're also interested in, as we've just discussed, you know, who and what these literacies are undermining. And a couple of those groups are the old religious elite and the British colonial regime. So could you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, it's a really it's really fascinating to read um, how religious elites certainly felt that this new world of of particularly uh, the press 
right? They recognize this as a place, particularly the reformers among them, right? So if you look at sort of people who are trying to make interventions, um, uh, uh, they were very concerned with the idea that anybody could just write to a newspaper and that would somehow become important and authoritative, right? This was a very disturbing idea, right? Like that people could, uh, a question could be posed to a community, the community, and then people just willy-nilly sort of write in and and respond. Um, So there was a certain um, tension there, but there was also a recognition that this was very powerful and that there should have been, that they really need to, you know, embrace it in some ways um, so that they can be part of that. And I I think what's really fascinating is actually looking at Al-Manar, like Rashid Rida's publication, he was several times, he was asked particularly about this idea of subversion with women and, and writing, right? And he was asked several times whether it's okay to teach a woman to, to, to write. Um, and there was like this sort of bogus hadith that was right, uh, being, sort of taking the rounds at the time. Um, and he responds in the beginning, he's very just nonchalant, like, this is not right. You, uh, women can, uh, can be taught how to, how to write. There's no religious pro- prohibition against that. But by the time he answers it for the third time, he sort of expands on this and sort of puts it into his revivalist notion of reform, that the best Muslim women have always re- read and write. Right. Like you can look at the, the, the wives of the prophet and they, they were, they were these the scholars and they wrote literature, right? So there's sort of like a renewal looking back at sort of Islamic history and saying, no, 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 this is part of our sort of part of what made us great. So you can sort of see how somebody like that, who's a reformer, really embracing these ideas in a way to, to fit into his own mold. And on that same note, I mean, you have these feminist Egyptians, nationalist and feminist upper class women who are sort of fighting their fight to take over part of this public sphere and this literate space. But they're also not necessarily in favor of teaching writing to women more broadly. Yes. And there's an interesting class element to the Egyptian feminist movement in that yeah. regard. Yeah, you get, there's a lot of sense. I mean, almost, it, it's really fascinating to see how um, there was almost no uh, pushback against elite women learning to read and write. There was this idea, particularly during this period of, well, we need to have, our, the women need to be good companions to the men, right? And if the men are literate in multiple languages, then perhaps the women right. should be multi- literate in multiple languages too. But it gets more dicey when you go down to the lower classes. Like, do, do peasants really need to learn, le- learn to read and write? Do peasant women need to learn to read and write, right? And so in some ways, they, um, it, some, some did advocate for sort of uh, broad uh, uh, compulsory education across the board. But a lot, of other, a lot of others sort of either didn't see lower class women. When they talk about women being educated, they only really are talking about the elite and they just sort of don't even mention lower class women. Um, and others would, uh, uh, particularly one uh, leading feminist, she basically said, no, women, lower class women don't need to. Nabawiya Musa. Yeah, she was, her, her sort of pr- perspective was if they're living a, uh, if they can make a living, Right, which is what her concern was, that women be sort of economically independent, then this idea of reading and writing as being important is not that important. And I think in a way, although I didn't write this in the book, in a way that reinforces this idea of broader literacies. In other words, even if you're a lower class woman and you don't know how, you're not officially literate, it doesn't actually matter because you could get along in your life plenty of other ways. Um, and that there was all of these other practices that you may have been able to tap into, whether or not you yourself were literate. And Huda Sharawi, did she weigh in on this question of literacy? That's a good question. Um, no, I, I, I look at her as her sort of her personal struggle. So she sort of personally talks about trying to learn how to 
read and write Arabic and how she sort of had to push back against a lot of authorities to do so and that she never quite got it, right? She didn't quite learn it the way that she would have liked to. Um, so I don't, I don't, I haven't read uh, that she had a particular view on it. But Which brings us to, I think, one of your really important interventions in the book, which is to say we can't assume what we assume now that universal literacy is a for the public good. Right. Nobody was sort of assuming that until the end of the time period you're interested right. in, i.e. the early 1920s. You write about so rural elites being frightened of the specter of tarbushed young men who are no longer willing to pursue manual labor and quote arrogant young women putting on airs sort of riling their husbands right, right. and this was a colonial uh, concern as well right is that if you educated too many people um, then you would get uh, widespread social unrest right against the- they weren't wrong they were actually yes, that's true. Actually, right. So they were like they were they were concerned about this, and I think a lot of people didn't really see. So what I sort of trace towards the end of the book is the idea how the idea of literacy crystallizes as the social good, right? And as actually a measure of modernity, like to be a right. good person, right? A good modern citizen, you needed to be literate. And this really only shows up, as far as I can tell, after the 1920s as a sort of these identifiable goals and these, uh, you start to see the um, plans to to expand to compulsory education for everybody, right? So you sort of see these sort of this movement towards that. Um, And what I think is interesting in that is that in order to sort of frame literacy as really, really good, you had to frame illiteracy as really, really bad, right? right? <laughs> to put it very like bluntly, right? Um, illiteracy becomes this new boogeyman where it hadn't really been before in, in Arabic-speaking societies. Which creates some exclusions. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. So um, the idea of Omiya or being illiterate was not necessarily a negative didn't have a negative connotation. The prophet prophet himself, again, of course, is associated with illiteracy. Right, right. Um, So this idea of being ummi was in some ways considered almost pristine, right? A pristine sort of state, right? Before you had all this other words in your mind or whatever. So people who weren't necessarily what we would consider literate in a modern sense, right? Able to read and write, for example, blind people people who are blind, right? This, they were very, very prominent in educational circle, circles as learned people, right? Not necessarily literate people because there was no concept of literate, right? right? They were learned people, individuals who had learned the Quran, learned texts, learned whatever, right? And they became very prominent in these, in these circles. And you sort of see um, how, how uh, central they were to the educational system. When you start moving into this period where literacy and literacy are sort of these diametrically opposed uh, concepts, you sort of see the segmentation of literate pop, uh, of the blind, particularly outside of sort of the mainstream, right? They're no longer quite as um, acceptable as teachers, right? right? I mean, the exception proves the rule, of course. Da Hussein right. was, was blind, right. and his ability to participate in this literate sphere wasn't circumscribed by his blindness. Right. But but that was actually like a, uh, he was a minor he was the the exception right of and so in all of the so I, I trace all of these petitions from groups of blind blind students who say wait a minute all of a sudden you guys have all these tests written tests that we can't even take right and we can't get into particular fields but this is our this is where we've always been right so talk a little bit about the the role of blind people as keepers of knowledge about Islamic texts yeah. and how that's changing over this period. Um, so they were particularly involved in the Qutab education. Like that was sort of like the major... And what are the Qutab? So the Qutab were like the local, uh, mostly religious schools. Um, 
they uh, they existed both in Coptic communities as well as in Muslim communities, um, and they were informal, totally informal, um, and they tended to focus on a particular kind of literacy that was not was not the literacy that the state was necessarily interest, interested in. They were interested in religious socialization for right. the most part, right? To socialize children into their religious communities in one way or another. And blind teachers were quite common in these in these schools. Um, but when you start having the regulation of these schools in the 1890s, um, there's you see it in the um, bureaucratic reports that, that they're purposely faulting blindness as a problem among the teachers. Having these blind teachers, are they're not quite as... They're not as perfect, right? In in the modern sense, right. right? They're they're deficient in a way that a literate world, a reading and writing literate world, uh, would see. So they're um, they're essentially forced out in 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 various ways. Okay, now we're back with Huda Youssef talking about her book, Composing Egypt. And before the break, we discuss how literacy up to a point in the early 1920s wasn't assumed to be in the interest of the general public good. By the same token, Arabic wasn't necessarily destined to become Egypt's official language. This is another one of the contributions of yeah. the book is showing that. Um, yeah, I think it's really fascinating to see that for a long time there was a dichotomy in Egyptian society between the official language of the bureaucracy, right, the Turkish or the, and and, and during this period increasingly English becoming sort of official uh, administrative languages, and then the Arabic that was used in sort of the interface with the with the greater society. Um, and so what I what I look at during this period is people's really peop, uh, the community in Egypt really struggling with the idea of is Arabic really fit to become a language of widespread literacy? Um, it had particularly Arabic reading and writing, right? When I talk about like those, those specific t- skills, um, so there is a big debate about whether they should uh, uh, change Arabic, right? More dramatically than the sort of modernization efforts, but really like change the the way it's written um, into a Roman script. Into a Roman. script. And why didn't that gain gain traction? I'm That's curious. That's a good question. I I actually don't know. Like, there's a lot of I I sort of. Uh, preface this in the introduction, like, there's a lot of really fascinating linguistic topics that I, I sort of touch on in this book, but I don't, like, I don't get into that deeply. I'm really interested in the, um, like, the the public debates about them, but exactly how or why, I'm not sure I'll leave that to linguists, I guess, but there is this question about romanization, there's this question about adding um, the diacritical marks into the actual, like, to write, instead of a dhamma, right, actually write a wow, right, okay. like, to make it oh, easier. Wow, okay. Right to read rather than because diacritical marks tended to drop off when right. you're writing text. So there's like changes to the script. There's a question certainly about the colloquial, maybe just adopting the colloquial as the language of the uh, of of the country. So and then certainly the like there was a very uh, English was becoming the dominant language in um, in the elite government schools, um, and French was certainly very prominent among the elite classes. Right, and you uncovered something really interesting about the debate surrounding the adoption of Egyptian colloquial yeah. as the official language yeah. or making 
sort of Egyptian colloquial as a literate, as a written language. Yes, yeah. So there was, I mean, this has been, a, I mean, essentially like a, th- a hundred year, over a hundred year debate that was, that's still going on. But at this period, you had several um, several people suggest, why, like make the colloquial, the, le- the mother tongue, right, that Egyptians actually speak, make that the language of literacy, and then it will be easier to reach more broader sure. literacy, like literacy language. And even some, you, you have a British judge who's writing diatribes about right. why aren't these people adopting right. their, quote, mother tongue, in right. quote. And, as, that, and that this was rather elitist. And, you know, by not, um, by by keeping the, the the standard Arabic as the Arabic, the literary Arabic, as the Arabic of education, you're basically cutting out all of these lower class people who are, who it's difficult for. Right. right. This was the, this was part of the argument. Um, and I, what I, and at this time, I think it's really interesting that, particularly during this particularly nationalist moment, why didn't more Egyptian nationalists say, yes, we want a national language that is the Egyptian, right, versus a broader Arab sort of uh, uh, national language. So they, there's a lot of debates back and forth, but one of the, the, the interesting sort of functions of this debate was this idea of adopting colloquial by many people who are, again, rather elite who are ta- talking about this in the press, was that the colloquial was a weak language, and Arabic was a strong language, like the, mod- the standard Arabic was a strong language, a language of literature, a language that had a history, that had a grammar, right, all of these types of things. And to adopt a weaker, quote-unquote, weaker language of the colloquial would have been a type of capitulation to colonialism, actually. Right. And the, the example that they give is, the in, is India, that India, the, the Hindu languages had, they were spoken languages, right, and that these were languages that, that had been there for centuries and people had been using them but when the British came they said oh this, these languages are weak languages versus English which was a strong language with a history and a grammar right on all these things so they said well if we as Arabs or as Egyptians um, adopt colloquial we'll be adopting a weak language instead of a strong language and that will open us up to basically complete domination of English as a language of, of learning and education and history so I thought it was an interesting sort of twist on the debate. Um, I think there's certainly definitely class issues there, but I think that there's an interesting colonial sort of logic, right, to this idea of a of sort of a hierarchy of ling- linguistic um, adoption. So almost as a response to colonialism, it, Egypt was less able to adopt a language that maybe reflected what was spoken at home. I don't know. That's a good question. I I think that there's a lot of elements to this question. The, this question of colloquial versus fossil. I mean, I think there's certainly also just a sort of visceral connection to the fossil, the language of literature, the language of poetry, the language of the Quran. Right. So there is there are sort of um, affinities. I think that are, that go beyond that. But I do think that for those who are interested in like sort of public policy at this time, that this was a real concern. Is how do we uh, fight back um, essentially European languages in our schools and in our society if we want to have a, a, a local language. And they, they basically felt that Arab, like the standard Arabic would be the Arabic that could do that. Right. And so to turn back to these public literacies, historians have sort of missed this in some ways because official literacy rates were so low. You talk about in 1897, 4% of the Egyptian population is classed as literate. That number is only 13% in 1927. But you bring in this very sort of interesting evidence to make a case that lots more Egyptians are participating in the written or spoken word than those numbers would indicate by quantifying, for instance, mail traffic. 
1880, regular domestic mail had reached 2 million pieces. Mm-hmm. And then it goes way up. And it, <laughs> it keeps going. Up. In 1927, 100 pe- million pieces of mail are right. sent annually. Right. So to put that in perspective, according to the census data, by 1927, there was only 1 million literate Egyptians. Right. And I posit that I don't think only one, 1 million people were sending 100 million pieces of mail of <laughs> right um, at, the, at the time. And what you, so I'm, this is like sort of the quantitative information that I had. And then you have sort of this sort of wealth of anecdotal uh, um, examples of how people were using scribes to essentially, so let me step back. When, you're, when we think of reading and writing a letter, we generally think of it as sort of this private act, right? That somebody sits at a desk and writes a letter Right, encodes a letter, and right. then they send that letter, and then somebody at the other end decodes it, like a one-on-one sort of interaction. But really what I think was happening during this period is that these were very communal practices. Somebody would uh, wanted to write a letter, they would go to a scribe. Um, if a community wanted to write a letter, which happened often, right, a community would go to a scribe, right, and they sort of have this, this you can sort of hear the dialogue actually in the letters. Right. Um, and they would... And what's an example of that? You have these colloquialisms that right, appear in, in the letters. Right, right. There's this one um, this one petitioner um, who is this mother who's trying to get her kids into school and she you can sort of hear the scribe the scribe sort of starts it very formally the letter very formally and then sort of as the letter goes on you can see, see hear him sort of hand over the pen metaphorically to this clearly illiterate woman Good. right and she uses all these colloquials about colloquialisms about how you know I'm in Maruf, do a kind thing right. you know let my kids into school right and she uses these sort of uh, this framing of her life, right, in her very colloquial language, um, and then it's sent to, you know, the government, right, in a very official format. Um, so I think that something like that, you can sort of see how, um, even though people were clearly illiterate themselves, they had access to these practices through scribes, through communities, through individuals in their own families who may have learned how to read and write, right? They would have used those sort of resources rather than just their own personal resources. And that's where your really crucial intervention in the literature about modernity and literacy comes in, where you acknowledge the contribution of Jürgen Habermas vis-a-vis the public sphere and Benedict Anderson, who has argued that print capitalism was a necessary condition for the development of nationalist identity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're saying they're not wrong about that. But what that leaves out is the broad participation in public literacies that your research reveals. And that's actually one of the things I think is really fascinating about print is that print, although we sort of think of it, I think, from the Western context context as sort of a democratizing sort of technology, um, at least as far as I could see, it really wasn't. A scribe was more accessible to majority of people than being able to go to a printing press and print out your ideas. So what I've noticed is what I, what I sort of trace is that these, um, these scribal, uh, and particularly I'm looking at petitions at this point, like scribal petitions that are written by hand come from a much wider range of Egyptians than printed petitions, right? right? The printed petitions are very much a product of people who are educated, right? Because um, the technology is expensive. Right. I mean, these Egyptian villages don't have printing presses, right? Exactly. Right? <laughs> right. It's a very, like, small uh, number of people who would have a- access to it economically and also physically, right? But a scribe, as soon as you could find somebody who would read or write, whether they were officially a scribe or not, you could have whatever your idea is encoded into into paper, have it sent, have it spread, have it whatever, right? So there was a lot of, um, I think that there's a lot of 
a lot more out there than what are the printed materials that we we tend to sort of look at as sort of the the evidence of the change that was happening during this period. There was a lot of people who were involved in things, but not necessarily at the at the level that they be- it becomes published. And famously, these are voices that are very hard to uncover as a historian, right? Because these are people who didn't necessarily, who for very understandable reasons, don't leave a trace in the documentary record. Right. And that was a real struggle for me to figure out how to sort of get at this. Um, so I try to sort of do it quantitatively, but also with these anecdotal sort of examples. And there are many of them. And you talk about writing history from the bottom up and the top down. Yes, yeah. So I think that that, uh, so really you have uh, all of these practices that are happening at this communal level, at the very low level that you can sort of just glimpse, right? Um, From literature, sometimes they'll talk about it in books and in stories. You'll hear about people using uh, these practices. You'll see sort of evidence of it sometimes in the written form in these petitions. Um, But it is a really sort, it's a, it's difficult to get at versus sort of people who are talking about literacy and talking about these sort of uh, big public debates, right, that are happening in the press. It's much easier to get at, certainly. And is this a story about Egypt? Is this a story about the Arab world? I mean, how does this chime with global experience of this kind of class who in the late 19th and early 20th century are participating in the public sphere in these very diverse ways. I think it's I think it's really important for the Middle East broadly mostly because of the low literacy rates. When we're looking at a period when there is such a low official literacy, right. right? In order to really get a sense of the cultural history, I think you really do need to think seriously about how to broaden your sources or broaden the the types of people that you're looking at. Um, and I think I think Arabic was particularly unique in the particular I mean, Egypt had this, certainly the problem of the colonial state that was sort of imposing its own ideas. Um, There was a revolution that happened in 1919, right? There's all these sort of contestations and changes that were happening during this period. And Arabic itself is a a language that has a history, that has, um, again, particular affinities that people had to it. Um, So there was a real struggle, I think, with people trying to figure out how do we mass produce readers and writers of this language? And it had never been done before, right? There, there was always a literate language of Arabic. Um, but to mass produce people who could read it and write it, this was something new. Which is a skill that takes a, a, a long time. So yes. Five years, you say, is what it would take to have a classical education in right. the Arabic language. And this wasn't practical for right. the masses in so right. many ways. Right. This idea of, like, in the old, uh, older uh, tradition, right, it's sort of a mastery, an art. Writing is an art. Right. You can't teach writing as an art in, in a public school. Right? right. You have to teach it as a as functional of, language, as a functional language. And they had to become very, uh, uh, you know, segmented into lessons and think about sort of how do you teach it from the youngest ages? How do you teach writing from the youngest ages versus, again, in the Qutabs, they generally writing was sort of perhaps something you learned. Perhaps you didn't. Right. If you were a very good memorizer, you may not need to ever write anything. Right. Um, so there was a lot of sort of. Uh, uh, mixed literacies, uh, you could say, in in the Qutab education. But when you start getting into the census and you start getting into, they want to quantify it. They want to, you know, at the end of the year, how many students, you know, learn how to read and write. Right? They needed to know these the, these things within the, the the more official systems. Then there is a real move towards sort of shifting Arabic into a a, a language that could be taught in a classroom in a particular way with particular outcomes. That I think is really unique to this period. 
what is this legacy? I'm, I'm curious what this legacy of literacy is for Egypt's, you know, past the time period that you write about, how you see that. Yeah. Um, I think that, that there's a real, I, I, well, one, I think the le- one of the major things that come out of this period is the idea of literacy as a public good that needs to be um, propagated in schools. Um, and this becomes, I think, like a, I think like an almost uh, ritual in the press of bemoaning the literacy rates every time like a new literacy rate right. is uh, published through the census or whatever, right? Oh, oh, it's so low. Why can't we get more? Uh, why aren't there more literacy, literate Egyptians? And this idea that somehow illiterate Egyptians are not quite as... Um, as integral to the national community, or in some cases, a detriment to the national community. Right. Um, this, so I, I, I sort of hint at this in the conclusion that there was, particularly after the the recent revolutionary uh, um, fever of the 2010-2011, um, like there was uh, a new literacy campaign launched by, you know, Amr Khalid and um, uh, and a sort of a private NGO type. Uh, initiative as a response to the revolution. As if the public's ignorance had been behind right, their exactly. claims against the state. Or perhaps, I don't know exactly what their, their uh, somebody else has done this research, so I'll, I'll defer to her, but there's certainly this sense of um, that we need to fix our country, and the way to fix it is right. through the literacy rate. And on the other end, people who said, well, Egyptians may not be able to vote because they're so illiterate. Right. right? They're not quite educated enough to participate in these these lofty debates. And I think that that is a, an unfortunate legacy of this idea of literacy as being this um, imp- the social good. There's certainly a lot of benefits to being literate, right? Um, but the idea of it as a sort of prerequisite to modern citizenship, I think it has been, um, can be used both ways, right? As a sort of making, pathologizing, in a sense, people who are Ill- illiterate or semi-literate or not right, quite as literate um, on one sense, um, and then also basically denying them their agency within, a co- within their communities. And people, I think the listeners may not necessarily be aware of the tools available to regular Egyptians, I mean, like, working-class Egyptians in terms of becoming literate. Like, can you talk a little bit about the state of Egyptian public schools? You mentioned in the conclusion um, private classes, right, which is a really interesting thing that may be particular to Egypt, where public school students are expected to pay the teachers for tutoring outside of the context of the classroom. They call these durus khususia, I think. What you sort of see in Egypt is uh, this perennial crisis of Egyptian uh, of Arabic, right. right? This is something that comes up in news, and it comes up in the in newspapers, and it comes up on cable TV. Um, the idea that Arabic is there's tr- there's trouble with the Arabic language, and particularly how it's taught in schools. People h- notoriously hate Arabic, <laughs> like Arabic classes, right? They love the language, but they may hate the class, right? right? Um, and that this is sort of a an object of derision, certainly um, in all sorts of contexts. But the idea that the, the changes that were happening du- during this period didn't really work. Arabic wasn't streamlined in a way that really works with the modern educational system. Right. Um, and that students who try to learn it are either not learning it, um, or the educational system as a whole is not quite prepared to really produce these readers and writers right. of the Arabic language. And there's a class element to that. There's a, there's the legacy of class here is, is right. almost overwhelming. Right. Where in the country's bourgeoisie, and this is true across the Arab world, isn't usually invested in the perpetuation of the Arabic language and Arabic language media. Right. And I think this is a function also of the, I mean, economics of it. Like, their Arabic is not... 
the language of power and the language of economic sort of advancement, right? If you're if you are uh, uh, even semi-wealthy Egyptian, right, you don't want to send your kid to an Arabic medium school. You're more likely, unfortunately, to to send them to an English or a French or now nowadays even German medium schools as a way to sort of give them a leg up in the global economy. Um, and that's I think. I think that goes beyond certainly like the linguistic concerns to sort of more macro and macroeconomic issues about across the region. And there's a legacy of colonialism, right. British colonialism, right, of and of a sort of prestige that goes along with each of these linguistic traditions. And so you start the book talking about your, your grandmother's experience. So I wonder if I could ask you to read the book's very poignant and personal prologue. Great, thank you so much. Um, okay, so the prologue. Uh, this work is, in part, my grandmother's story. Born in Egypt around 1920, Amina Kandil grew up flanked by two very different generations, that of her own mother and the generation represented by her youngest sisters. Like many women before her, Amina's mother never learned to read or write. Meanwhile, the younger women of the family were part of a new generation of learning. They all went to school, some continued on to higher education, and one even became a doctor. As for Amina, education was pursued at the hands of a series of female tutors who came to her home to teach her sewing, crocheting, baking, reading, and writing. Throughout the many roles she played in her life, Amina used these skills to their utmost capacity. She was the amateur seamstress who saved the family the cost of school uniforms, the baker who made enough bread for the entire street, the family scribe who noted debts and payments in her delicate handwriting, and a voracious consumer of novels in her youth, and a dedicated reader of the Quranic liter- lit- litany in her old age. But her story as an unschooled literate, for whom literacy was part skill and part treasure, is absent from the common narrative of Egyptian history, which tends to divide the population into the literate elites and the uneducated majorities. She was neither illiterate nor part of the country's new, empowered, school-educated classes. Nonetheless, she was part of a growing stratum of, of Egyptians for whom particular kinds of literacies were deployed, used, and cherished in their everyday social circumstances. Her informal education allowed her to pursue her economic needs, interests when she most needed, to follow politics when it concerned her, and to make demands on her community when necessary. This is where literacy mattered. literacies mattered. How people used and perceived the written word determined their interactions with the larger world around them. Contrary to the hopes of many reformers, literacy neither opened the gates to modernity nor ushered in a new era of social nirvana. However, the idea of literacy and many of the practices it did inform fundamentally altered the social fabric of Egypt, making protests, women, writing, and debates more visible to the Egyptian collective. This book is aimed at those historians of Egypt, the Middle East, and beyond who wish to look at the history of literacy during times of change with new eyes, to appreciate its complexity, unevenness, exclusions, and riches. This reevaluation of the history of literacy gives us a truer picture of how the dramatic social changes that occurred during the late 19th and early 20th centuries actually filtered throughout the diverse parts of Egyptian society. In this space, there is room for a much broader view of the social and cultural history of the emergence of modern Egypt, a view that includes the poor petitioner, the lofty idealist, the struggling student, and the worried mother. All of them are subjects of this book. All of them were, in one way or another, composers of modern Egypt. Great. 
So I'm curious, just on the personal level, how has this project helped you understand the experience of your family? Or the it, what had struck me about my grandmother is that she is such a clear participant in my mind in the sort of social and cultural history of Egypt, right? Like she was so, she saw so many aspects. I spent a lot of time with her, like talking in her balcony and things like that. Um, and I could, she was sort of my window into the past of, in, in a lot of ways, on a very personal level, clearly. But um she witnessed a lot of things. She understood. She was very, very smart about, like, she understood what was happening politically. She understood what happened during Nasser's period. She understood all of this, these political changes that were happening. But she would not have been considered part of the, uh, part of the people who mattered from this period. Right. Because she was not part of the Fendiya. Right. right. She wasn't part of the school-educated classes. Right. Right. She used, she had literacy sort of at the margins. Right. Um, and so that's really what struck me is that there is a very, very broad, a much broader um, s- element of Egyptian history that, it's not that we forget, but it's hard to access. And then I think that we can, we, we have more and more tools, right, to, to, get, uh, to get at that. And I hope this will provide one more tool for people to use. Okay, well, thank you for joining us today, Hadi Youssef. Thank you so much. Her book, Composing Egypt, will be, interesting, will be interesting not only to scholars of Egypt, this period, but of the Arab world more broadly, and to linguists, and I think to scholars of modernity. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah.